The subject matter of this podcast will address difficult topics, multiple forms of violence, and identity-based discrimination and harassment. We acknowledge that this content may be difficult and have listed specific content warnings in each episode description to help create a positive, safe experience for all listeners. In this country, 31 million crimes, 31 million crimes are reported every year. That is one every second. Out of that, every 24 minutes, there is a murder. Every five minutes, there is a rape. Every two to five minutes, there is a sexual assault. Every nine seconds in this country, a woman is assaulted by someone who told her that he loved her, by someone who told her it was her fault, by someone who tries to tell the rest of us it's none of our business. And I am proud to stand here today with each of you to call that perpetrator a liar. Welcome to the podcast on crimes against women. I'm Maria McMullen. Law enforcement officers are sworn by oath to protect and serve, making it difficult to understand how these same individuals could also become domestic violence or sexual violence offenders themselves. In attempting to find current and reliable data that documents crimes of domestic violence committed by law enforcement officers has been somewhat of a scavenger hunt, at least for me. The best I was able to determine is the data from Leonore Johnson's study that found 40% of officers commit acts of intimate partner violence. That stat was reported in 1991 to the U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee on Children, Youth, and Families. And based on that data, it is further estimated that of the officers who respond to 911 calls related to domestic violence, two out of the five of those officers are abusers themselves. Some experts argue that it is the very culture of law enforcement, a culture of silence, that shrouds crimes of domestic violence and sexual violence committed by police officers. Others say it's because officers tend to protect their own, and domestic violence victims of violent cops often don't know where to go for help. To break down these issues, we're talking with former LAPD officers Dr. Stephanie Powell, whose unique insight into the world of sexual exploitation and trafficking was gained through her 30 years on the force. Since her retirement from the LAPD as vice sergeant and beginning in fall 2020, Dr. Powell now serves as director of law enforcement training and survivor services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Dr. Powell is a doctor of education and organizational leadership and adjunct assistant professor of behavioral science at Los Angeles Trade Technical College and uses her considerable skills and insight to educate the community about the complex and often misunderstood world of sex trafficking and to create positive change for its victims. Dr. Powell is a powerful speaker, a tenacious educator, an advocate for change, and one of the premier experts in this field. She has been featured on CNN, Headline News, as well as local media in the Los Angeles area. She has published a human trafficking youth prevention workbook, and her workbook has been utilized on a national and international level. Dr. Powell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for inviting me. We're so glad you're here. You've worked in law enforcement for 30 years, and you are currently the Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. So I'm curious, uh, looking back on those 30 years, what led you to a career in law enforcement and ultimately to training other law enforcement officers? You know, it's, it's interesting how I got to uh, become a, a Los Angeles police officer in the first place. 
I was an elementary school teacher before I became a cop. And um, because LAPD was under a consent decree, mm-hmm. um, they were actively recruiting um, female officers and minorities around 1983. And so my father was like, you should become a Los Angeles police department, a police officer. <laughs> and I was like, dad, why am I going to do that? You know, we're from South Central LA, being African-American. I said, mm, I don't think I want to do that. So he said, you're, you're already college educated. He said, um, the changes that you would like to see the department make you could do that from the inside. Mm-hmm. And so he used the example of the termite. He said the termite is a small insect that can take a building down from within, be the termite. And so I went into law enforcement to um, not only bring about a change in terms of police community um, relations, but because I just genuinely wanted to um, help the community and be able to give back. So that is not only my reason for being a police officer, but based on, 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 on what I know, I wanted to be able to share that in the um, realm of training as well. So that's the reason why I became a police officer. And of course, training gives me the opportunity to share what I've learned um, and not to mention that being a teacher is just kind of in my blood. Wow, that's a beautiful story. And I, I have immense respect for your father now as well, um, because I do think that that's a, a really incredible analogy, uh, you know, of the termite. And you were a high rank, you had a very high ranking position uh, with the LAPD and now you're in a national training role. So I guess you really are achieving your dreams of, you know, influencing from through education. I'm curious, have you found that moving up in the ranks as a woman in law enforcement afforded you any unique insight into gender based crimes? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, by uh, uh, being a female and uh, the uh, types of jobs that I had during my career, I think it really did afford me the opportunity to maybe ask extra questions or when I saw something, seeing it from the lens of maybe there could be another story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think oftentimes when you when you think of rape, for instance, when I first joined the department, a rape victim would have no choice but to talk to whoever showed up to that call. Right. And that has changed. I've seen a lot of changes where she would now be able to ask for a female officer. Good. Right. Um, And I think being that female officer, I would hope that when I walked into that room, that she would feel comfortable enough to tell me what she needed to tell me. And by being a woman, I would know, um, I could tell from her, hopefully from her body language, you know, what was really going on with her. If, if, if she was um, too stressed to talk, me not pushing her, you know, just, just it's the little things, right? And so I think it, not only me being a woman, but also being an African-American woman, because that has a racial component to it as well, right? In mm-hmm. terms of um, 
by my presence, having a different understanding of exactly what's what's going on. Yeah, I would and think I would think that kind of um, helps victims to understand. Hey, she really is here for me, and and she'll get me. She'll understand me and and the culture that I'm living in. And you know what? It was really important for me that she understood that. Mm-hmm. That was important to me that she understood that I'm here for you. I'm going to do everything that I can to make it right because of what you've been through. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I really commend uh, that approach and um, all of the work that you've done has been really incredible uh, coming into the force. And what did you say it was the 80s? I came on in 1983. In 1983 as an African-American woman in a man's world, in a man's field. And you really, I mean, you really have had uh, and continue to have a a really incredible career and reputation. We wanted to talk with you specifically about the issue of domestic violence and sexual violence among law enforcement professionals. I think for so many of us, it is challenging to accept that police officers can be abusers or traffickers just like civilian offenders might be. I've read that police officers commit up to 15 times more domestic violence than non-officers. And based on Leonore Johnson's study from the early 90s, 40% of officers are abusive at home. Is this an accurate picture of the current situation? You know, I have to tell you, you know, just as you said in in opening up that question, that it's challenging for um, you or the public to accept. It's equally as challenging for me to accept uh, that those numbers are so high. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think uh, you also quoted, I believe, uh, was it a, a study that was done in the 1990s? Yes, Leonore Johnson. Yeah, so I was going to say, I think that the type of officer that would have come on during that time would be a little different from the type of officer that would come on now. But having said that, um, uh, it, it does not negate the fact that uh uh, domestic violence and um, officers who uh, have been involved in, in human trafficking, um, that uh, those issues or the conversation is, is still coming up, right? Mm-hmm. Because when I first, and I'll give you an example of why I'm saying that. When I came on in 1983, a lot of my training officers have been, um, were veterans of the Vietnam War. Okay. So you had a different you know, type of person that I was being trained on, but are trained by. Now you're seeing people uh, coming on to the department that are college educated. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, there's some departments where you have to have a college education just to be hired. Right. Where before it was extremely common that you could have a GED or high school diploma. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, I, for us to even have to have a conversation about officers um, partaking in in this type of behavior is is concerning to me. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, 
when these types of things happen, it also diminishes the trust of the community. Sure. So I, I saw a study where it, it showed 40% of officers that filled out a survey said that they had been involved in um, some type of domestic violence within six months of taking the survey. Yes, that's this survey, this particular study. Yeah. Right. So I, I found that to be I found that to be disturbing. Do we know if, if if that's the most recent data that we can really rely on, or is there other data that we can that can we can point to? I wasn't able to find another study on that level like this one. And that's that's the other thing that I found to be a challenge. Not to say that it doesn't exist, right? Sure. Um, but I found it to be a challenge that I couldn't find any anything else, and it seemed that the um, the sampling number was not that large. But Correct. here's the thing. Yeah, I, I, I noticed um, it was only a little over 700 participants, even at yeah. that time. Exactly. So it, see, it, it appeared to be a little high to me. I thought it seemed to be a little high. And talking to officers that are still active, when I told them 40%, they were like, that seems pretty high. But how will we ever know the numbers when something like domestic violence, the things that happen in the privacy of one's home are not always reported, right? It's usually going to be the more um, obvious ones where there's a black eye or there's bruising or the victim has enough um, strength and and courage to tell because oftentimes victims of domestic violence are afraid to tell regardless of of what the husband does, but if it were a police officer and she has to, she or he has to report it to the agency where he works mm-hmm. might keep her from, from doing that. So the bottom line is we probably don't know, really know what the numbers are. Yeah. I, I completely understand that point for sure, because crimes like domestic violence and so many other things, trafficking, um, sexual violence, rape are so underreported other than this study, which did survey 700 and some families uh, related to law enforcement officers. We just don't know uh, really the scope of the problem because of the underreporting. And that that's kind of across the board. Is it accurate that despite the statistics, so we're going to just kind of work with the assumption that it's maybe 40% or it plus minus because we don't One really is know. too many. <laughs> One is too many, right? Right. I mean, yes. And thank you for pointing that out. Um, would it be accurate that despite these statistics, most police departments do not fire an officer even after a criminal conviction for domestic violence? You know, it's funny uh, because when we talk about police departments, um, police departments, all police departments don't all do the same thing, Mm -hmm. right? So I can tell you coming from the Los Angeles Police Department, which is different from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, that uh, domestic violence is taken seriously. That when the allegation is made, that officer ends up getting... um, of all things, getting sent home, but where else is he going to go? Um, mm-hmm. Until, uh, because you have an administrative 
uh, investigation and then you have a criminal investigation, right? Sure. Um, but the bottom line is that the allegation is taken seriously. And um, that officer really does stand the risk of being fired if the criminal investigation shows that he really did what he did. However, on the administrative side, you, if, if it shows that uh, this person did it, they could still be fired just based on the administration, the administrative aspect of the investigation. But there are some police departments, which I was reading um, prior to, to me coming on the, on the podcast, and I couldn't believe this, that uh, some don't even have a policy as it pertains to officer-involved domestic violence. And they should. Yeah, no they, officer, they really no should. Officer, <laughs> yeah, no officer should ever be above the law. I worked internal affairs. I did internal affairs investigations as well. And I don't believe that officers should be held, uh, um, uh, uh, he should be, he or she should be held accountable. They're not above the law at all. And they should not wear a uniform or a badge um, if there's this type of abusive behavior that is not only happening in the home, but that could be happening off duty. It just should not be. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. Did you work to any domestic violence investigations when you did internal affairs work? I had an, I had uh, domestic violence situations. I had um, child abuse situations. Now, having said that also, I also had some situations where the other party was not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Because they knew that they could get that person fired. So it also kind of runs both ways, um, unfortunately. But I did have some where the officer did it and he, and he was fired as a result of it, mm-hmm. as he should have been. Let's talk about the culture within law enforcement. I've read about this culture culture of silence uh, within law enforcement is that a real thing? And is it to blame for allowing domestic violence or sexual violence to continue among law enforcement officers? I think when we talk about, you know, normally they'll, they'll call it the code of silence. Code of silence, um, yeah. Is there a code of silence? I think, I, I believe that there there is. Um, I saw it even more so um, early on when I came on the, on the job. Mm-hmm. And where I saw it the most, though, was when it came to use of force type of situations or that type of misconduct. Um, I I didn't see it as much when it came to domestic violence. Um, And I think that's because, see, you run the risk with, with the code of silence um, I think with the domestic violence, because you can't control that other person. Whereas if it's a use of force situation with a, um, a criminal, that might be a little bit easier to control in terms of that person telling if that if that makes sense. Um, but I'll tell you this much, what they did constantly drill in, in our heads um, and me growing up in, on the department is this, if you make the decision not to tell, you run the risk of losing your job 
just like the person you didn't tell that you refused to tell on. And that got demonstrated. And so as time go, moves on to the present, if you see somebody is getting fired because they didn't tell, that starts to make you rethink it's me or them. So it goes back to policy. It goes back to policy, not just having something written on the books, but people actually getting fired. And when people start seeing that, that starts to break down that code of silence. And so I think that's why uh, it's not as prevalent as it was when I was on the job, but I can't speak for, you know, Nashville PD or, or Dallas PD. I can only speak for my experience within the Los Angeles police department. Yeah. And I, I completely respect that. Um, and understand that that was your experience for sure. And I think there's, there's just so little written about the experience of families of law enforcement professionals who experience abuse that some of the information may be a little bit outdated, um, especially if we're looking at a study from the 90s. And to your point, which I'm really glad you brought this up because I didn't even think of it, the training that officers receive today is different. The education level uh, entry is different. And in many cases, we are not um, having veterans from, let's say, well, it's definitely not the Vietnam War, but other uh, imp very impactful and traumatic war experiences coming right into the police force. So I understand um there's going to be a disconnect between what's available for us to read and learn from in academic information and in books and, and other survivor stories. But I have to ask you a question about training because um, I know you're involved in training, but, and, but you've brought it up a couple of times. And I have to wonder, you know, the, the training of law enforcement professionals is, I would think, very rigorous and would relate to um, lot, many, many different things, right? But especially how to handle firearms and apprehension of um, criminals, you know, people who are violent, how to react in certain situations, how to handle people uh, physically, how to handle situations psychologically. And I'm curious about training of law enforcement and wonder if some of that training uh, maybe to blame for officers knowing and getting away with violence against women and children, especially in their own home. Especially because I've read about specialized training where, um, you know, law enforcement professionals know how to touch a person so they don't leave a mark on the body and so forth. What do you think about all of that? So... Um, I, I, as you were talking, I was writing down notes and I, I want to go back to the veteran aspect of it. Um, you know, especially again, when, when I came on, they were heavily recruiting, um, veterans, mm -hmm. um, because they felt that they would, um, um, be better served in, in law enforcement because they were used to, um, especially those that had been in combat. Um, so that would kind of eliminate a, a fear factor. Um, 
to now um, looking for officers that have more of a community approach, um, as well as being able to handle themselves in the field, if that makes sense. Yeah. When they, because, you know, law enforcement, it's, it's a job that deals with violence. You know, um, people shoot at you sometimes. Sure. And so you have to be able to um, not only be able to protect yourself, but to be able to protect the community as well. The other thing that I was going to say is that, you know, it used to be that uh, if you went, because you were having personal problems, for you to go see the department's psychologists used to kind of be been frowned upon for officers to do that. And I have seen a paradigm shift in that where more officers um, were more willing to go into counseling. Now, of course, you have some that still will not go. Mm-hmm. But just to see uh, some of the younger ones being open to that, um, because another stat that is out there is that officers, police officers are more prone to alcoholism as well as suicide. Right. But I also saw a stat that 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 same um, high statistics is also mirrored in the families of police officers. Yes. And I thought that that was that was extremely interesting. So that does bring about the discussion or question. If they are. um, It. if because of what they do is creating an atmosphere of alcoholism and suicide, then some of that would have an impact in the relationships with family, right? And so I, I, I do see that as a dynamic. As it pertains to training, I see that law enforcement now is doing more specialized training when it comes to implicit bias, Mm -hmm. when it comes to um, um, pushing the need to seek counseling if if needed. So I, I see the, and not to mention, you know, when we talk about domestic violence training. So I see more specialized training that is more so geared toward um, uh, uh, dealing with personal problems, as well as how do you interact with the community when you come across victims of such violence. So I see that that turnaround. Now, does that mean that every single officer in the United States gets it? No, because if they did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. So I think there needs to be more, more recent studies because it's with those studies that we could figure out how to fill in those gaps. And it's with those studies that these departments would have no other choice but to combat this issue aggressively and not allow officers that get accused of these things um, to continue to wear that uniform. Well said. And I think you just found your sabbatical research project that you're going to need to take some time off to do <laughs> because we need, we need that information. We need that data. 
you know, I, I really want to go back to the point you made about the recruitment of Vietnam veterans. And we now know the level of post-traumatic stress that those veterans really experienced uh, post-war. And I have to wonder, uh, to, your, to your point about that and the studies that were conducted shortly within the time frame of those veterans being recruited and uh, employed into, into law enforcement, if that, if that moment in time and those particular circumstances developed a certain type of police officer, um, and then how things have shifted from there. So because there is still high rates of suicide and alcoholism and abuse caused by job stress, is it really because these were, you know, veterans of war or is it something else? Is it the violence that they're experiencing day to day? You, you know, and, 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 and it's interesting because I, I think I also saw a study or I was reading that it also depends on where that officer is working, right? So if that officer is working in a, um, uh, a community such as Beverly Hills, just as an example, sure. in terms of where um, uh, the people there, uh, the income is extremely high. He is, he or she is going to probably experience less violence than someone who is working, for instance, in South Central LA mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Um, so they also looked at, uh, I've seen studies where they looked at where officers um, were, were working. So now it becomes, the question becomes on an individual level, right? You have someone who is um, coming in post-war, now also dealing with the violence that they're seeing in the community day to day. Or you got the officer who's never been to war that is still experiencing that same violence every day. You're still dealing with the residue of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Because you, you are, you know, I, I tell people that I probably have seen, I've, I've seen the, the worst of humanity um, because think about it. I, I, I go into, I would go into people's lives at the worst, the most worst possible time in their life. Right. So I tell people I have seen things that others should never be able to see. And so um, you do have post-traumatic stress disorder as a result. And then it also is what did you work within that department, right? Like what were your duties? Mm-hmm. Now, what officers are also taught is that whatever emotion that you're feeling, because, you know, uh, when you go to people's homes, they're not always happy to see you. <laughs> When you stop them in their car, they're not really happy that you just stopped them. And so oftentimes you get called everything but a child of God. And sometimes people want to hurt you. And so as a result of that, you are also taught that you cannot express the feelings that you may want to express, right? If you feel like hitting somebody who has not threatened you, you don't get to hit them. Period. So along with your training, you're also trained to restrain yourself. And so that should also carry on into your home as well. 
Now, are there some people that unfortunately wear that badge that might be, be uh, more prone to violence just in the nature and character of who they are? Yes, absolutely. Because remember, police officers are recruited from the human race itself. So you, and do you have to also, when you're out in the field, exhibit um, uh, assertion and aggressiveness just based on the job? Yes, absolutely. But those that have the inability to control themselves, not only on the job, but in their own home, do not deserve to wear the badge and other officers would, stay, would say the same. And for someone to know that this is happening in someone's home and not to say anything, shame on them. Wow. Um, I can't argue with any of that. I, I think you're absolutely right. I'm glad you said all of that. I appreciate you speaking your mind on the issue because that's a very powerful statement coming from a veteran police officer. Um, and you you mentioned a couple of things that I, I also wanted to ask you about. Because violence is about power and control, is it possible or do we know that people are attracted to jobs in law enforcement based on, on those two very specific things, power and control? And also to that point, because you talked a little bit about personality, and these are hu real human beings, right? They're not robots. Um, you can't train a personality out of a person. Is there a psychological evaluation that determines if a potential officer could be uh, not a good candidate because they have a specific personality traits? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, when you come on the police department, there is a psych evaluation. Also, if you are, um, uh, let's say you get accused of domestic violence or use of force, um, there's another, you have to see the psychologist in order for you to be cleared. Also, if you're in a shooting, even if it's a shooting that's within policy, you have to be psychologically evaluated before you could go back on the job, before you can go back in the field. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the answer to that would be yes, but I'm going to tell you something else that's, that I found pretty interesting that I had never thought about is that there have been police officers who have also been a victim of, um, of domestic violence that have not reported it or of abuse where it's the wife mm -hmm. who's been abusive to the husband, but he will not tell on her um, and he will take the abuse because what he doesn't want is for it to bounce back on him and now he lose his job because there would be a tendency to believe him over her. So I found that to be an interesting dynamic that people don't even think about. Just like we don't think sometimes of men being victims of, of domestic violence. Right. But, but we know that that, um, but we know that that happens. Um, we know that that happens as well. I think what also complicates this, this whole thing is unfortunately the victim, and I'm, I'm going to go back to the victim not being a police officer, being so afraid to tell because she's been so intimidated 
by um, a person who has taken his his or her because women can be abusers as well has um and i mean female officers yes. you know has taken have really bought into the power and control and the dominance that's within the household and being afraid to tell because a person's going to lose their job so it's going to be hard for them to live mm -hmm. um that they have to report it to the same agency where the person works i mean the dynamics of all of this really goes against um um the best thing for the victim when her husband is a police officer and god help if that police officer is one that is of higher ranking yeah i can't imagine the mindset of a person who's in a situation like that it's got to be extremely traumatic uh for for everyone involved and you said the word intimidation, and I'm glad that you did because um, I wanted to ask you about the intimidation that occurs uh, through the use of firearms in the home, specifically when police officers are the abuser. So, for instance, uh, we know that the presence of firearms in the home increases lethality risks for people in abusive relationships as well as for the officers who respond to domestic disturbance scenes. So help us better understand the dangers of firearms in these specific situations. So, you know, as we know, uh, domestic violence calls are one of the most dangerous calls that a police officer yes. can go to. And, and oftentimes officers are harmed as a result. I, I think that if you, if, if a person is a victim of um, domestic violence and their and their abuser is a cop knowing that there are firearms in the house um that has to add to um the angst and the um uh the feeling of danger as a result of that i know that when uh you go to domestic violence calls if there are any firearms in the house they're supposed to be taken um, so I, I know that. I also know is that, that is, is that um, in every state in the United States? Is, is that the? I don't know if that's every state. I know in California, they they could be taken. Okay. Um, and in some cases, they're not even returned. Um, I know that when um, Los Angeles police officers um, are accused of um, domestic violence especially depending on the level of violence, that officer's guns are taken. Now, if your gun is taken, that means you can't work. Right. And and um, you would not get your gun back pending the criminal investigation if you don't get fired as a result of the domestic violence um, uh, situation. So I taking the firearm out of the house, I think, is... I, I, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, it's kind of critical, right? I mean, it's it's definitely a barrier uh, for a victim when it comes to her safety or even seeking support. So in addition to firearms presenting a barrier to leaving the relationship or seeking help, there are other barriers for spouses and children of officers who are abusive or sexually violent in the home. Um, you talked a little bit about that. I want to go a little deeper 
what are those barriers? I mean, besides just the fear of uh, reporting him to the place where he works? I think that the barriers are going to mirror the same barriers as any other victim of human, of um, domestic violence, um, except for the added things such as having to report to the same um, organization in which that person works. But I think it's gonna be the same in terms of the angst, especially if the person is not working, right? So if the person is not working and now you take out the, uh, the main supporter of the household, it may keep them from reporting because now their their husband may not have a job anymore. Or I think where it may be enhanced as well, most police officers are extremely proud of the fact that they are police officers. Some police officers, um, especially those that don't, they don't have any, um, um, uh, let, let's say all they have is their GED you know, where are they going to get another job mm -hmm. that's paying as much as police officers make, right? Right. With, and so now not only have you taken his job, his or her job, but you've also have taken away their identity. Right. And by taking away their identity might make them even more violent than what they were in the home because now they don't have anything to lose. So I think with someone knowing that, that could be a barrier for them reporting as well, not to mention that they have the mechanisms to find where their spouse or family has gone if they have to go in hiding, right? Because they know how to find people. So I think um, these are just kind of heightened barriers that would keep somebody from reporting. So having said that, that means the ones that do report have really gone to their wits end in order for them to have the courage to report. Wow. I mean, that that is really terrifying. <laughs> that, um, And I do think that those barriers are a little bit higher for victims who are being abused by a police officer at home. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that there's some barriers that are going to be the same and there's going to be additional barriers to that because of the fact that the person is in law enforcement. Yeah. And, you know, also um, I've heard um, victims of um, domestic violence that unfortunately where it was a, um, a police officer that have said when I reported it, to the agency where he worked, I got blown off. Right. That should and and that should never happen. But and I would imagine your smaller agencies, and this is a guess on my part because I'm coming from you know a huge organization. But if think about if you, good thing if your husband is working a a law enforcement agency that only has thirty people there. Everybody knows everybody. You've probably been to the Christmas parties with the same people that you've got to give this report to. But having said that, there's also other ways to report as well. So you could always uh, report to DOJ. You could always um, um, 
uh, report to other city entities, you know, as well. It doesn't have to be that particular police department. So if you're a victim who is being abused by a law enforcement officer in the home, you can report the crime to the Department of Justice. Is that correct? Yes. If you felt that if you reported it to the agency where that person worked and you felt that it would not be properly investigated because of that, yes, you could go outside and have it reported. It's kind of like when you you see it in uses of force where there might be a shooting or a use of force and you will see that sometimes it's not going to be that particular agency that does that investigation. That's where you see the uh, the DOJ come in or outside, or it might be a neighboring police department that might do the um, the investigation. So yes, there's, there's, there's other ways. I could see how in some cases that could be very helpful, unless of course the relationships across those agencies are incredibly strong and, uh, and tight and those could those could become a factor. I mean, who knows? I suppose there's any number of ways that we could look at this. But I'm glad that you brought that to our attention. We talked a little bit about psychology and visiting the uh, department psychologist. And there is a delicate balance between supporting police but also holding them accountable for their actions. Can you talk about the trainings that you're doing now and that you've done in the past and help us understand how training plays a role in abuse prevention and what specifically is involved in the trainings. You know, I'm going to give you one example of a training that I did um, where, and this was a human trafficking training, and it was for them to be able to understand um, who the victim of human trafficking really is, right? And so what I realized was for them to understand that and see someone as a victim of human trafficking as opposed to someone who is just willingly in prostitution. Yes. Um, I knew that I had to show that there was a, a commonality between that victim and them. And keep in mind what I'm about to describe to you. These were um, officers that, that worked vice, so it was mostly men in the room. Mm-hmm. So now I've got to get these men to understand who some of these women are that, that are victims. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, if they felt, you, you know, those agencies that are still um, heavily arresting the prostituted, who these people are. So this is what I did. I um, looked at the, the adverse childhood experience. Um, so there's there's a theory, adverse childhood experiences, whereas if you take this test. Is that the ACEs? ACEs. Yeah. Exactly. I'm so glad you knew what it was. So, <laughs> yes. So I had the officers actually take the ACE test. So a lot of them didn't know what it was. I explained what it was. I had them take the test, but I didn't ask them their scores. Mm-hmm. But I could tell once they took that test, a lot of them had high A scores. So then once they knew what their score was without me asking them, um, I went on to explain that uh, not only a lot of victims of human trafficking, but just people that they run into in the community in and of itself had high A scores. Mm -hmm. And you could see the aha look in their eyes 
to understand that they too have more in common with those that they are arresting than what they thought that they may have had. And I thought that that was an interesting dynamic. And so that's an example of training in which it's just by the, the grace of God that it wasn't them, but how it could have been them. That is brilliant. That is really brilliant. And I'm glad you shared that with me. I think that's a, a very interesting technique for allowing people to just very easily take a look at themselves um, without telling them, you know, you need to take a look at yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it, it's, it's also, again, and I'm, again, I'm using human trafficking as an example, is that when they understand that this could be anybody's daughter, including theirs, mm-hmm. now that's going to give them a different lens to look from when they're dealing with somebody else's daughter. It's, it's, right? It also, you know, it kind of humanizes all of these presumed criminal experiences. Yes. In other words, a sex worker is not there typically of her choosing. There's other reasons why she's there. It's circumstances. It's a pimp. It's, you know, this was not her lifestyle choice. Yes. And I think the the tactic that you employed through that training, it it kind of humanizes the, the, if you want to say the the person they're arresting or the potential criminal, um, so that they can really understand that we're all having a human experience, right? We're all just doing the best. Sometimes we're at our worst and it, it helps. <laughs> but uh, it does, it, it just makes it uh, a little bit more relatable. Exactly. And I think that, I think that's why the training coupled with um, stringent policies where there's a a follow-up. I think because there's going to be some that get it just based on the human aspect of it. Mm -hmm. There's going to be others that unfortunately they don't get it until there's consequences to their action or they see what's happening to other people that now are getting in trouble or they're getting fired or they're getting horrendous days because they realize, oh, the department's not playing around with this. They really are taking a look at this. So at the end of a training like the one you described, do you have the opportunity to analyze who gets it and who doesn't get it? I can see, um, it's a little bit of both. Sometimes you can see it on their face. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you see it in, um, because you do a, a pre and post survey. Okay. And so you see the comments on the survey because I love for surveys to be done where they don't have to put their names on it. Of course. So if you see something like, you know, I thought this training was BS, then that's that's the person who the policy is going to get them. So either the policy gets them where they're fired mm-hmm. or the policy uh, modifies their behavior. It's kind of like when I, you know, it's kind of like, um, when, uh, uh, and, and I'll use women coming on the job, right? Where officers, male officers weren't used to working with females. And sometimes they would say extremely inappropriate, inappropriate things. 
Um, but then policies came into place where they better not say it, and not to mention that departments were getting sued as a result of it. It didn't mean that some of those same guys changed their thought process, but what it did do was modify their behavior. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Um, and I'm just thinking that through along with you <laughs> while yeah. you're talking about it. Uh, it's really interesting because, you know, in a professional environment, um, we don't behave like we're in a locker room, right? Uh, so there's a demeanor that one takes on in a professional environment, especially when it's men and women. And um, it's one of respect and professionalism. And it does not involve what I would call locker room talk, <laughs> which yeah. is what I think you're alluding to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it used to be you, you'd go into an office and you might see, you know, kind of like back in the day when you would go get your car fixed and you'd see the pinup calendar with the girl hardly having anything on. Mm -hmm. and, and now, like, you don't see that anymore. No. And so uh, you like the pinup calendar type of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'd see sometimes the same thing in um, maybe in, in, in some of the offices where, guy, where only guys were working. Well, they can't do that type of thing anymore. So I, I think some of these policies um, start to modify not only the behavior, but the expected behavior when it comes to women. Do you think, and this, this really would be an opinion, uh, I wonder if it actually reduces the objectification of women or just makes people behave when they're in a certain place with women? And that, and that becomes the question. Mm -hmm. I think, I think honestly, I've seen a little bit of both. I've seen a little bit of both because some of the same guys later on, I would hear them say, you know, and, and listen, they got this from training too. And I thought this was beautiful where they were good. They go like, you know, if my wife or daughter was working in this environment and that person said that or behaved toward them like that, I would be pissed. Mm -hmm. So see, they saw the connection that their wife or daughter could be going through the same thing and you wouldn't like it if it was them. So why, was, why is it okay for this behavior to take place when it's not them. When it's someone else's wife or someone else's exactly. daughter. Exactly. So yeah, to your exactly. point, making it relatable and very close, you know, when it hits very close to you, um, it does sometimes affect people's behavior and maybe it can cause a, a real shift in not just their behavior, but their ultimately their thinking as well. And, and, and you know, and unfortunately, and again, this would be my opinion, that some of the guys that don't get it, that keep the objectification, that see women in a more subordinate light or see women as supposedly having a more subordinate role, I would see some of them being at risk for what we're talking about when they get home. Abuse in because the that's their mindset of how they see women. Right. And if you couple that with a man, and we'll talk men right now, 
that also have this issue of hyper-masculinity, of that power and control, it's going to be that type of personality that's going to be problematic with the things that we're talking about at home. That makes perfect sense. I mean, in a lot of these conversations that we have on the podcast on crimes against women, our key takeaways are often power and control, entitlement, male privilege, and then, of course, underreporting by female victims. It, 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 makes for, it makes for a disastrous recipe, doesn't it? It, it certainly like, does, and it can, but it sounds like you have made some progress um, in some of these trainings with some, with some officers uh, along the way. And I'm wondering, I haven't looked at this information, but is law enforcement still a male-dominated field? Oh, God, not like when I first came on. <laughs> oh, my goodness, no. Um, and, and, you know, not at all. And I, I'm just going to give you just a very quick example. Sure. So when I came on in 1983, in 1979, 1979, yeah, 78, 79, women were not allowed to work in a black and white. So that just gives you, you know. Yeah, I'm kind of like holding my breath. So you couldn't work in a black and white. You couldn't work patrol. Did you have to wear a skirt? I didn't have to wear a skirt, but but a few years prior to that, they did. And you couldn't promote. You couldn't promote past the rank of sergeant unless you had worked the field. So you see, that's why, hence, that's why there was a... um, that's why there was a consent decree. So when I first came on, the pub, not only were the officers that used to um, women working um, a black and white, but the public wasn't either. Oftentimes they would stare or you go to a call and they'd ask you, couldn't you have, couldn't a guy come to answer that call? Um, so I only <laughs> say that in terms of reference to now, if you asked a little girl, you know, it would not be unusual for a little girl to say, I want to be a police officer when I grow up. Yeah. Whereas when I became a police officer, women were not police officers. So statistically, yes, in some of your smaller departments, some of them are still experiencing um, um, very few women in their in their police officer ranks. But in the bigger departments, you, you it, it's not unusual not only to see uh, female officers, but it's not unusual now to see female chiefs. Having a female officer at a call, uh, they found that there was less chance of, of violence that by, by her presence or how she handled the call may lower that uh, possibility of, of a use of force. So they did, they, they found that having females on the job um, was a good thing. It certainly, yeah, it certainly is a good thing for sure. We know that now, right? Um, now, interestingly, at the time when you came on the force, that was only a few years after 
the criminal justice system began treating domestic violence as a serious crime and not a private family matter. So what do you say about that? So think about that for a minute. Right. So when, when if, if it's, cons- I mean, there's so many ways to go with this, with that one. If, <laughs> if, I mean, when you think about, when I first came on the job, um, you would go to a domestic violence call. I kid you not. The, I had the, the most horrific one that I had. I mean, I had others that unfortunately involved murder, but where this guy ends up breaking this woman's nose to the point where her nose was very crooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we met her at the, um, we met her at the uh, emergency room because she refused to do a police report, we couldn't arrest the guy. Wow. I had to walk away. And so I found that to be so disturbing. So I was so happy when the laws changed where the officers had no choice. Whoever was the aggressor in that domestic violence situation mm-hmm. went to jail. Who if and if it was if it was both of them, both of them went to jail, but something was done. I would go to a call where if the guy came up with the best excuse in the world, which there is no best excuse in the world, why he had to hit her, and to see an officer say, Okay, man, why don't you take a walk around the corner? Calm down, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 make this thing right but i'm telling you if if i have to come back here i'm going to arrest you now how many times did that guy take around the walk around the corner he's even madder than what he was when he left and came back and beat her even more and then dared her to call the police right that so to me that that's horrifying so i'm glad that's changed but think about this for one moment if you have an officer that is doing the same thing in his household, he sees it as not being a big deal because the law basically is saying it's not a big deal. How many times is that officer, he had a bad day, he goes home and now he does the same thing and dares her to call the police. So I think we have come, thank God, a long way. And when that same officer thinks about hitting his wife, and he knows that he could lose his job, that he is um, he is uh, 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 held to the same degree as the average citizen. It is my hope that he will think twice. But then you have some jurisdictions where I don't think, you know, domestic violence is taken as seriously as it is in other jurisdictions. Yeah, we've had some rural communities uh, indicate that there is no domestic violence in their communities, and they don't they don't need about. domestic violence education. That's what I'm talking about. That, that, and those, to me, are the most at risk, not only for the general population, but now that police officer who might be prone to doing this is going to do it because he knows nothing's going to happen. Because of the mindset, not only of his department, mm-hmm but possibly of the prosecutors that are, are supposed to be prosecuting these cases. As yeah, because well. there are no consequences. Exactly. 
What can fellow officers and law enforcement leadership do to help facilitate public trust of law enforcement while also holding police officers accountable for abusive behavior and trafficking activity? I think that, um, uh, I think law enforcement agencies should have policies, um, no tolerance. Mm -hmm. That that behavior is not going to be tolerated, um, especially and, and 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 by all right, it has to be investigated, but it should be investigated um, um, objectively, right? So an objective investigation. If that person is found guilty, that there should be no tolerance. If that means that they would go to jail as an average citizen would. They need to go to jail. Right. If they need to be fired, they need to be fired. Because I think when, when the community sees that, they're going to, the community now knows that uh, that law enforcement agency is very serious about this type of crime. And so therefore, um, it, it, it gives that department more credibility. I think also when you have a no tolerance um uh, that other officers don't just shrug it off, um, that they would be quick to be able to, um, to tell. If you know something, you better tell it because if we find out later that you knew and you didn't say anything, mm -hmm. then bad things are going to happen. Yeah, I mean, that makes However, you complicit, right? Right. Yeah, because, you know, I, I hate to say it, but... Even though I know, you know, officers, some officers need to go to jail for what they do. It breaks my heart to see officers in, in, in handcuffs. It, it, it just does. Mm -hmm. It doesn't break my heart enough where some officers don't need to go. It does. But I think, you know, it, and it goes back to, it goes back a little bit to the, the code of silence thing, mm -hmm. just only to this point. That, you know, when we're out in the field and, the, you know, uh, you're, you're getting beat up, your fellow officer is the one that's going to come in and save you. We take care of each other. And I think that's where, and that's what I was going to say, I think that's where that code of silence thing comes in, is that we take care of each other out in the field. Right. You know, if, if, if there's a shooting, your partner is going to, you know, um, we'll get into that shoot that, that they save your life, right. we save each other's lives. So I think when we save each other's lives, it makes it, it makes it easier for that code of silence thing to come in because we take care of one another. Yeah. They're protecting, so, they're protecting each other, uh, all the time. Um, my partner is going to keep, my partner is what's going to help me get home mm -hmm. tonight. However, having said that, if my partner does something that is egregiously awful, I, I need to I need to have the strength to say something, right? And I need to have the strength to say something, and I need to have the support of my fellow officers within that station or within that department to expect the same thing of me, right? So sometimes that you know, sometimes that gets a little muddled. Um, so I think that uh, a, a no tolerance. It's not only should be in policy, but it should be amongst peer groups. Now, having said that, and as I'm saying this, 
One of my fears is that as things become stricter, other things start to become hidden. So that officer that thought it was okay to, um, and I, I, and I'm just throwing this out as an example, um, that it's okay or the kid about hitting his wife no longer would do that. So there would be nothing to tell mm. because he would know if he told somebody, somebody's going to tell, he knows that, you know what I mean? So yes. it's, if she tells, so driving things underground, but having said all of that, it doesn't negate the fact that there needs to be more policy. There needs to be an expectation um, that, um, officers don't tolerate it amongst themselves. That we're all held to the same standard. Exactly. Dr. Powell, thank you so much. I really learned a lot from you today. I appreciate it. I enjoyed our conversation. And I hope it helps people. I think it will. I know it helped me. I, I learned a lot from you today. And uh, I think our listeners will as well. To further expand on this subject... Following is a quote from the introduction to Alex Rosen's 2017 book, Police Wife, The Secret Epidemic of Police Domestic Violence, that includes a quote from retired Lieutenant Detective Mark Wynn of the Nashville Metropolitan Police Department, who is also the keynote speaker of the 2022 Conference on Crimes Against Women. My inquiries took an unusual turn when I learned of a group of eight police women in Toronto who had themselves been abused in relationships with fellow cops. Even they faced enormous obstacles when they tried to get help and justice. The women said investigations into their cases were bungled and that they were ostracized and faced career blowback for complaining. The common theme is that all of our careers are affected, while most of the men didn't suffer any career repercussions. Some got promoted, one of the women officers told me. I wondered just what kind of horror show I had come across. If even a cop couldn't get a fair hearing from her own department, what hope did a civilian woman have? It seemed incredible that a crime wave of such magnitude and far-reaching social consequences could be so unknown to the public, and yet at the same time an open secret in a mostly indifferent law enforcement community. It was surely one of the most surreal crime epidemics of our time, at once disavowed, generalized, and virtually unchecked. Aptly summing up the bizarre disconnect, retired Lieutenant Detective Mark Wynn of the Nashville Metropolitan Police Department in Tennessee told PBS in a story on the issue, quote, What's amazing to me is we're having this conversation at all. I mean, could you imagine us sitting here talking about this and saying, how do you feel about officers using crack before they go to work? Or how do you feel about the officer who every once in a while just robs a bank? Or every once in a while decides to go in and steal a car from a dealership? We wouldn't have this conversation. Why is it that we've taken violence against women and separated that from other crimes? End quote. Wynn also made a, another disturbing point. Quote, you teach them, cops, all these skills, and then you add all of that to someone who is violent. You've got a lethal combination on your hands. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe.
Interested in learning more about the topics you've heard on this podcast? Visit conferencecaw.org. For details about the Conference on Crimes Against Women and other upcoming training opportunities, and follow us on social media at National CCAW. You can also register now for the 2022 Conference on Crimes Against Women on May 23rd through the 26th in downtown Dallas. We look forward to seeing you there.